salary is important for two reasons, right? First reason, which is the one people think about, but actually don't uh, often don't make the rationale to is for purchasing, right? So you need salary to buy shit. And that's good, of course. And sometimes you might be living at a level in your life where you need all the salary you can get to either to survive or to support your family, be that your, your, your spouse and kids or be that your parents, right? But the other point and where I'm seeing way more people care about salary is actually from a point perspective. Like people use salary as like a points in life kind of uh, points in the game of life. I and that's where you need to be. Exactly. You compare with your peers. And that's where you need to be super careful. If that's why you care about salary, because you want to compare with your peers, that's not what's going to make you happy. And, and that's definitely not what's going to make you wealthy in the long run either. Hey, welcome to Beginner Maps, where we showcase stories of scary career pivots so that you get the courage, path, and role models to carve out a career that you love. Today, we have Jacob Newton with us. Jacob is the co-founder and CEO of Butter, a startup that is bravely going against the video conferencing incumbents like Zoom and Google Meet by building a fun, interactive, and delightful video conferencing tool. They're not the adjectives that I would have thought to ever use to describe a video conferencing platform. I am excited to talk to you, Jacob, about your journey of building Butter and your founder's journey. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me here, uh, Jesh and, and, and Piyush. Like, it's uh, it's super exciting to be here, uh, and uh, love love what you guys are doing with, with beginner maps. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk to you and take you way back in your life when you were uh, a kid. So you were a straight A student, right? You aged every exam. You 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 were like the type of student that has their career planned out for them, like 15, 20 years ahead in advance. Is that right? Yes, very much so. Like I think I even knew from uh, very, I think it was in eighth or ninth grade. I, I don't know, that corresponds to like 13, 14, 15 years of age. Uh, I knew exactly which, um, you know, what I wanted to study in university. And it was, it was this, uh, this thing called international business in Denmark, which requires the highest GPA of the entire country to get into and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'd already planned that out and I'd, I'd almost started planning out what I wanted to do after, um, after I'd done with my studies and, and, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line, I had, uh, a, 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 um, a plan for, for everything and exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> so has it gone according to the plan? Uh, not at all. I mean, and, and I think it's, it's fun to kind of see and reflect back on, on that because, I did go both during my high school days to get the GPA that I needed to enter that uni degree. Like I really went uh, went went hard on getting the. Uh, I focused a lot on getting the uh, the grades that was necessary, and then I got into this, and it was awesome. And then of course I went into grade uh, focus there as well, and I think I got into the top ten percent of this class. Uh, but there was still things that went wrong, and I think. The first thing that and, and the things that went wrong taught me way more than you know getting these good grades in in in, in uni and in, and in high school. I remember one of the first things that really kind of shocked me was um, I wanted to get into this double degree, double master's degree. So just like both doing my degree in finance along with doing a degree in, uh, in, in I think it was called European management, something like that. And um, I applied and we had an interview there. And I think out of 92 applicants, 90 applicants were accepted. And I was one of the two that was rejected. And I that was like, that rocked my world. Because suddenly this plan that I'd set out, it... It, it all fell apart. And I, I really meticulously planned everything. And because I'd been pretty good at, you know, achieving the things that I set myself to, um, it had all happened the way that I expected it to. Uh, but being rejected from this, by the way, and I was rejected for being too arrogant in my interview, or at least that's what I kind of later I found out. Um, it was, uh, it was an amazing, it was kind of one of the first things that, that really brought me in the path that would eventually lead to lead to butter. And one of the, the, the reasons why I did do that was because it suddenly forced me to rethink my entire path 
very fast and like rethink my decisions very fast. And I, I think I ended up instead of doing this, uh, this double degree, I ended up going on exchange to, to the U S uh, uh, where I lived half a year. And then I did an internship in China half a year, which um, in, in Beijing, which um, then got me on the path to Asia that I'd later go to, to, to in my career. But Okay, fair enough. After my studies, I still started out in consulting and strategy consulting, which, you know, uh, in, in what's now Bain and Company in, in the Nordics. And I mean, that's pretty standard too. But after three years, I started getting restless and um, wanted to do something both with Asia and wanted to do something in, in startups. And I got the opportunity to go to Indonesia, of all places, to Jakarta. Uh, and that was the first time where my career really, like, so although the, the my previous failure was kind of something that, that kind of blocked me, this was the first time where my career really took a drastic change. And like, again, I was in a, I was doing pretty well at that point in consulting, you know, I was on, I was on a good path. I was earning very highly. Um, so to go to a country that I've never been to, to start up a business within digital marketing, which was something that I'd never uh, done in my life before at a salary that was like one third or one quarter of what I was currently earning. That was, that was pretty extreme to be perfectly honest. Okay, that was so like it was my first a, foray. a downgrade, like uh, a downgrade. Oh, yeah, massive. massive. Like I, I, I think I went, yeah. Like I think my salary was at least cut in half. I think cut down to a third um, compared to what I was earning back in Denmark at that point. So what, what did they give you and that motivated you? I mean, I got a little bit of equity, which turned out to be a pretty solid deal later on. Uh, but it was, it was a very small chunk, but it was enough. And uh, I got responsibility. So again, this agency that I went out to, they, they were called Lion and Lion. They, at that point, I believe there were 40 or 50 people in Malaysia only, and they wanted to go international, right? So I was supposed to be... Uh, I think it was country manager, managing director, whatever, all, all kinds of fancy titles, but essentially heading up the operation in Indonesia. So starting that up. Uh, and, and I mean, that it, it, it's back to the fancy titles because, you know, when I went there, it was with one person from the from the head office who who was uh, supporting me, a super cool Dutch guy. And then uh, then we got a local in very quickly in Indonesian. And, but I mean, we did not know what we were doing. Like it was, uh, we were just you know, bumbling around there in, in Jakarta, trying to build up this agency. Um, so what motivated me there was mostly just the opportunity to do like the freedom. That was a really big thing, like extreme freedom. There was very little oversight. I could just do whatever I, and I had support from the, the, the central office, but I could do whatever. And then the opportunity to build something that felt like my own. And that was kind of cool. And over time, we did build something. So, I mean, within a matter of two and a half, three years, we we built the office to 40, 50 people in Indonesia. I got clients like Google, L'Oreal, Nestle, uh, ended up winning. I think we were like the number two digital marketing agency in Indonesia, one of the, the awards there for, for some campaigns we did. So. Wow. We ended up building some cool stuff there, but it was uh, it was a very random but but awesome journey. <laughs> <laughs> this was so cool. I mean, looking back in hindsight, it was obviously a good decision for you to take that pay cut and exchange it for this opportunity. But I'm always just very fascinated by people who, in the moment, ha can have the courage to take make the decision for this massive pay cut. Because as someone early in their career, I like one of the things that I'm most afraid of is. What if it just takes me like massive steps down in my career ladder and, you know, taking this pay cut, maybe it can, um, like it's a, it's a high risk, high reward thing, but how do you judge between the risk and the reward? That's a super good question. So firstly, I, oh, a number of thoughts. Firstly, I think we need to disaggregate pay from career. They're not the same. Right. You could be like, again, you can go forward in your career while still taking a pay cut or you can go up in grades while still taking a pay cut. I think it's a very important thing. And I obviously like, again, I was a I was a management consultant, a strategy consultant, earning very well, but I didn't have any management responsibility. Right. And I got the title of managing director. Right. I mean, that's a fancy title uh, and, and nobody outside of there could see my pay. So from a career perspective, it also looking outside in. Uh, it looked like a career step up, like a massive career step up, to be perfectly honest, right? 
so, so just a reminder that pay and career is definitely not the same thing. I do think that there are instances where one might step um, step backwards, kind of both career and pay-wise, on paper at least, where it still might make sense. Take if you were to go from a big corporate where you had a fancy job, like fancy title and fancy uh, pay, and you wanted to go to a startup, right? Maybe same title, you maybe you'd get the same title, right? But but that's kind of it. But you'd actually take a lower pay, and you might have fewer people under you. the The time when it might make sense, or at least where I thought it makes a ton of sense, is where you get more. I guess you call it agency, which again translates into something like responsibility. Your learning curve gets goes much faster, and potential upside in terms of equity. Right? I mean, equity is something that that's where you take. Sure, you might take a pay cut in your everyday cash flow, but the assets that you own, suddenly you own an asset that might actually be worth a lot in the future, right? Um, I mean, right now in my current job, like I'm probably earning one quarter of what my market salary would be or less, maybe one fifth of what my market salary would be, but that's okay because I own a very, very valuable asset, which is my equity in butter. But I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think another thing that's super important to note in terms of salary is that not everyone can do it. Like for some people, salary is more important than others. I, I think salary is important for two reasons, right? First reason, which is the one people think about, but actually don't <laughs> often don't make the rationale to is for purchasing, right? So you need salary to buy shit. And that's good, of course. And sometimes you might be living at a level in your life where you need all the salary you can get to either to survive or to support your family, be that your, you know, your, your spouse and kids or be that your parents, right? But the other point and where I'm seeing way more people care about salary is actually from a point perspective. Like people use salary as like a points in life kind of uh, points in the game of life. I and that's where you need to peers. be... Exactly. You compare with your peers. And that's why you need to be super careful. If that's why you care about salary, because you want to compare with your peers, that's not what's going to make you happy. And, and that's definitely not what's going to make you wealthy in the long run either. So uh, so that's why I would be careful. Um, the reason I could do what I did was obviously I've been earning quite nicely over a period of time. I come from Denmark, which is a super high security country. So even if I failed, even if everything went to shit, I could still go back and like I could get social security support or whatever, right? And and find a new job. So so the risk was actually not that big for me. Whereas, you know, when you come from a, a country with a smaller security net, like like I mean, like India or Indonesia, where I was or whatever, right? the risk of failing is actually much bigger uh, because there's not that network or that net that can kind of catch you. Uh, hope that makes right, sense. Right, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, actually. So do you think this, like, was it there in your mind that the risk of failing is not that big when you made the jump to be, your, be a founder and put it all at risk? Yes, it was. Uh, I think it was always there, right? And it's, even now to this very day, right? I mean, Butter has not yet succeeded. We're still in, in we're still a startup. Um, and even today, like my risk of failing, I mean, yes, I know it's there, but worst case scenario is not that bad, right? Uh, my worst case scenario would be, oh, if I really had to, I could go out and get an extremely well-paying job, right? Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's not really a bad scenario. Well, I don't like it because it would not make me happy. And that's why I probably will never do that because I really value the freedom and the the, the act of creation, which is why even if butter would fail, if if the unspeakable act would happen, I'd probably just go out and start another thing, you know, because I, I love what I'm doing so much. But it, even if I needed to, for financial reasons, to do something I knew I could, that that, that worst case is, is, uh, is not there and the risk of failing is not that bad. Mm. Huh. This is really interesting. You mentioned something there that... Um... You you're building butter and you're uh, you're a founder because you like building things. So mm -hmm. um, when when did you realize that you want to just quit and uh, quit your consulting career and be a technical founder and build a a startup like a build a product based startup? Ah, uh, so again, there was a middle step, right? So when I quit my consulting career, I went into build a digital marketing startup right so whatever you can call it like a digital marketing right. agency so that was a proven business model 
there's nothing risky in the business, inherently risky in the business model. We were doing what was being done by literally thousands of companies all over. So what I was doing there was just just building a business within a proven business area. Uh, and I, I wasn't even building it from the ground up. I was taking a, I was building the local business unit, right? Uh, from a, um, uh, from an otherwise functioning agency. So the risk was at least from a, business model perspective, the risk was limited um, or non-existent from business model perspective. The real risk came when I, so what happened by the way with the agency was we we sold to a Japanese player that wants to kind of enter Southeast Asia. Uh, I stuck around for another year or so, uh, went went to Hong Kong as well to help build out some new new markets. Uh, but but I mean, Indonesia, the, the Indonesian part was my my baby, right? So I felt like my job was uh, was done in, in, in a manner of speaking. Um, so in mid 2018, I left for Denmark, where I'm from, uh, together with my, my wife, who's also Danish, I wanted to get get back to the family. But I also wanted to start up a uh, there like that. So that's that's where it comes, right? I wanted to build a technical, uh, technical startup, a technical a product based startup, which I didn't have any experience with. And I think <laughs> at that point, my ignorance was my friend, as it is so often. Uh, I didn't know just how little I actually knew, <laughs> how how little experience I had with actually building a building a real startup. I thought, oh yeah, I built something before, sure, but it was very different. Um, In what aspect so, was it different? Like you, you had been a very successful founder, so I'm sure there were a lot of uh, most of the skills must be transferable. So some of them were, right? So the skills that were transferable was uh, leadership skills, recruitment skills, recruiting skills. Um, they were operating in uncertainty, uh, budgeting skills, financial skills, sales skills as well. And sales is a big thing for a founder, right? I mean, I've done tons of sales to large companies uh, there. And, and as a founder, you sell to employees that you want to sell the vision to, you sell to uh investors that that you want to get to invest uh you, you sell some potential customers so there were some so really important skills. things yeah yes yes definitely important things definitely important things. okay <laughs> fair enough i shouldn't underplay that that is a fair point <laughs> as i had learned many of those but building a product is about first finding a problem that you want to solve and then finding a solution to that problem uh, and that that's what building a startup is in many ways all about and all of the things that I mentioned before, yeah, sure, they're very valuable, but they don't matter at all if you've not identified the right problem and don't build a prop product or a solution that actually solves that problem. Then, you know, you can go play startup by or play business by doing all the businessy things, right? But it doesn't matter if you don't build the right product. And that was basically the mistake that we did in Streamworks. We didn't find, identify the problem correctly. Like we, it was basically a startup that was supposed to do constant discovery for game streaming platforms like Twitch, uh, YouTube gaming. At that time, there was something called Mixer as well, that was owned by Microsoft. So the idea was to build a content discovery platform on top of these various platforms that showed a lot of game streaming content. Um, and we, like, again, I kind of tried to identify the problem because I'd spoken with a lot of game streamers that said, oh yes, we cannot get new viewers. So there must be a content discovery problem. But I did not speak with many viewers that felt that it was difficult to find good game streamers. And it turned out that people didn't really want to discover this so-called long tail of streamers uh, that didn't have too many viewers because they were not all creating that great content. Um, so we actually managed to build a, like it took some time, had to do a lot of learnings about how to build products. Uh, I got a great co-founder in Chris, who was also my co-founder in Butter, and later on got a, a, a technical, uh, he never got the title of co-founder, but he was head of tech, uh, Adam, who's also my now co-founder in Butter in. So we could build the platform and we did, and that was fine. But because we weren't, hadn't identified the problem correctly, the solution did not matter, right? It was not that it, that it, it didn't succeed. So how did you realize, and, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm curious, um, at what point did you realize that, you know, you have not identified the problem correctly? Probably sooner than we shut down. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I think I uh, maybe it was half a year, a year into the journey or something like that. Start having big doubts. Um, and uh, towards the end, we knew that, I mean, it also, it, it was not fun. It was, a, 
it was, uh, it, it, was, it was a horrible, it was probably one of my toughest, toughest periods in my life. It's just, you know, this big question mark on should I keep on going or should I should I shut this down now, right? Because you hear so many stories of founders just persevering through the hard times and you just need to keep on going. There'll be light from the end of the tunnel. And that's a super dangerous thing to kind of get yourself caught up in because yes, that might be true if you have identified the problem correctly, but you just haven't found the solution yet, or you haven't been able to build a solution that really latches on to solving that problem. But if you have misidentified the problem from the beginning, then no matter of hard work on building out a solution will ever get you there. And you'll just end up, you know, uh, fighting for eternity for something that should not you should not fight for. And you might say, oh, yes, well, then you just need to make absolutely sure that the problem you identify is correct. Sure, but how can you be absolute sure? You know, that's a tough thing, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, that is the main question. Like, there's two very competing advice that floats around, you know, uh, about persevering through it. Victory might just yeah. be around the corner. So maybe you need to pivot and you need to show some courage and just Rich. go through it. Yeah. And grit. Yeah. And then the opposite advice is that you need to be qu quick and fast and identify your failures and just move on to the next thing. So they're both very competing and it's difficult, can be difficult to navigate the two. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's, it's uh, honestly, it's one of those things that are, I don't want to say is the most dangerous for a founder to kind of get caught up in, right? I mean, the most precious resource we have in life is time. It's like, and that's why the money thing, like the less dependent you can make yourself on money, the more happy I think overall that you'll be in life. I know this is a little bit of a digression, right? But I've I've almost always run my life with a very low uh, fixed cost spending, if you will. Uh, so that means like low um, uh, apartment rentals or whatever, like low so low cost on on uh, uh, real estate or apartment rentals or living there. I've, I've never owned a car in my life, which is also a big drain in Denmark. Uh, I don't have a lot of expensive uh, subscriptions or whatever. Um, so keeping the very or the fixed costs in your life low, then you can always spike your variable costs. Like I love going to Michelin restaurants, for instance, and I love traveling. You know the experiences, right? The, I love those things. The, the those things in life, but but those things you can just like spike, and then the next month, you know, you can stay at home and you can live on oatmeal or whatever, right? Or ramen <laughs> or yeah. Um, so. Uh, a little bit of a digression, but the thing is that because I've never been super cash dependent in my lifestyle, or I had to, you know, bought a big house and, and a big fancy car and needed to have that upkeep, that has given me tons of freedom in terms of pursuing the things that I actually drove happiness for me. Yeah, so, so, so from that perspective, being as little cash trapped as possible has made a ton of um, uh, made a ton of things possible for me. That's also meant that ever since, well, honestly, ever since my consulting days, I've not had to trade time for money. Like I've not had to sell myself or sell my, my, my services or whatever you want to call it. I've just been able to do whatever I thought would make me pursue happiness. And for me, that's building business. <laughs> um, so, and, and that's, that's the big thing on like when you talk about, so yeah, kind of going full circle back to your question on grits versus just shutting stuff down. The big question there is always like, am I spending my time right? Am I like, is the opportunity cost for my time too high to keep on doing this or should I just keep on doing? Uh, and that was basically where like we could probably have shut stream down even sooner and maybe we kept it going a few months too long, but it's not a, it wasn't a biggie, to be honest. Um, we got tons of learnings from it. And I think what was most important for me was when we shut StreamCrowds down in January of 2020, um, we were able to stick together as a team. So Chris, my other co-founder and Adam, uh, that, that our te technical head there, and myself, we were able to basically, I think we shut StreamCrowds down by end of January and uh, like uh, January 30s and on, on Feb 1st, you know, we got going on brainstorming on new, new ideas, right? So we rolled the momentum over almost directly. Um, so 
the reason why I know we didn't shut it down too late was that if I'd kept on going too long, the, the others would not have had the energy or mental capacity to kind of just keep on going. Yeah. Uh, so basically uh, what you're saying is you did not get to a point where you just hated working on it and you felt oh, like your personal I energy. Oh was... yeah. I, I hated <laughs> working on it. I absolutely hated working on it. And it was, it was, uh, but, but, and that was maybe for the last three to four months, but it was not much longer than that, but it was for the last three months, four months. I absolutely hated. but I mean, mm, rolling that over you also have to give it a try right i mean i never doubt looking back i never doubt whether i gave it a real try you know and sometimes you might look back and doubt whether you gave it a real try and i, I feel that that was kind of okay so the, the most important thing about not having it kept it going for too long was that i was still able to roll over into something new with my co-founders and keep that energy keep that energy going mm. um yeah uh, and, and I mean, it seems like the most amazing thing. And I remember that day when we shut it down, it was a feeling of relief rather than a feeling of regret. Right. right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was funny, actually. I, I thought that I would, when I was, when I was in those final stages, I felt like, I, I thought that I'd feel like a failure. I'd feel like, oh my God, this is horrible. This is the end of my life. But it was such a relief to shut it down so definitely like as to your question whether i hated it towards the end i definitely did and that was why it was good that i i did what i did yeah right okay that is um thank you so much for being so candid over here and telling us yeah about this journey thanks um, for the really good questions i really love them uh, they <laughs> take the right places yeah <laughs> thank you so i want to also get back to something uh you said just now which is that just after you shut it down you and your co-founders started building the next thing. And mm -hmm. this is something that really surprised me and impressed me when I was going through and researching for your um, for this interview, which is that you three had built two companies together without ever being in the same room. And yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you didn't know each other, like you, you weren't childhood friends or something. And yet you have gone through so much together as co-founders. And that is pretty incredible. What did you do to have such a camaraderie? Like, did you play some games uh, away from work? Or what made you guys, you know, know that you want to stick together after this startup as well? Yeah, for clarity, Chris and myself, we're both Danish and we actually did work together in Denmark on, on stream products, right? So we we were physically we were physically together there. We did not know each other before this, and we were introduced uh, through a friend. And I was looking for a product design guy, product guy to kind of be my co-founder, and I was introduced to him. Um, and we just hit it off, like you, you know those those people where you just feel an instant connection, right? And, and you just feel like ah, this is cool, right? We can be buddies <laughs> for life. Uh, and and we felt it that way, uh, definitely. Uh, Adam, I started working, I think he came in maybe half a year after we started Stream Prox, uh, so mid-2019. And uh, it was through a, like, he's the husband of one of my previous employees in Indonesia. So it's very, like, circumspect or it's, it's very funny way of, of life kind of going full circle there. And we just, I mean, we were working there on Stream Prox together and we just, we just really liked the way that we were working together. It just flowed, right? Uh, he, he actually started coming in as a contractor first on like a single project, and then he came on full-time and then, you know, took over more stuff there. Uh, and it was just cool and it felt good working together there. So it wasn't like we were, Adam and Chris and myself, Chris and I, we were, we were close to best buddies then when, even when we shut down string procs, even though it was super difficult. Uh, but Adam uh, was still not, not fully there yet. Today, he's definitely one of my closest and most beloved friends. So, but now we've also gone through a lot together. Um, but um, I just asked him, hey, do you want to try this thing out, right? And he was like, yeah, okay, let's go uh adam's always been a very brave person as well and i think like all three of us are just very entrepreneurial people which is why we've been able to just roll over the way that we've done here so uh from that perspective i asked you a question on hey how did you connect we connected over work we connected over it wasn't it's not games or all kinds of other things that's not how you truly really connect no the, how you connect is about building something and doing something meaningful together and that's what we did
and uh, and and have been doing ever since. Love it. That's so cool. <laughs> so um, uh, now I want to take a little segue and talk to you about building Butter. Butter is a company. So um, with Butter, you're obviously going against the big, massive incumbents like Zoom and Google Meet. What gave you the conviction in the early days that you can do it? Because it's not something that you have done previously, is it? No, it's not. So again, a quick origin story on Butter, which I've told you, I think, a zillion times by now, was that when we were looking for, after we shut down Streamcrux, we, we, like, we were looking for ideas. We actually listed up ideas and we evaluated ideas in a framework and, you know, uh, and, and we evaluate not ideas, we evaluated problems. Again, back to the big learning that we got that we had to identify the problem correctly. So we, I think YC, uh, Y Combinator has a, something called startup school where they have a lot of great things, including a framework for evaluating ideas, which we, uh, which we were very inspired by there. So we went through a lot of different problems that we thought and uh, we, that we evaluated. And, and the area that we explored this within was remote work. Well, that was at least one of the, I think we had two, three bigger themes that we explored problems within and remote work was one of those. And the reason was that Streamcrux was built as a remote company or like semi-remote company. Chris and I was together, but we had people from, including Adam, from who's based in Jakarta at that time in Indonesia. Uh, so we felt like we knew quite a lot about this. We felt quite passionate about it. I feel super passionate about remote work, um, but that's a digression. I'll, I'll get back to that. So we looked into those different problems and right, like, again, we started early Feb, but early March COVID struck. We were still evaluating problems by then. Uh, we'd actually gotten by that time, a small, uh, small investment that was like pre-idea, but just investment in us as a team by Morph Capital, our, our pre-seed investors. So we had a little bit of money that could help us keep going, but we were just exploring ideas. And we thought, okay, the best way to identify this problem is to talk to users. And one format of talking to users is doing workshops to these where you train them in how to do remote work. But these based on our best practices that we've learned from Streamcox and, and then a ton of research, let's, let's train these people, like the startups, teams that don't know how to work together remotely, let's just train them. And that was kind of where our aha moment appeared, namely that doing these workshops was way more difficult than doing and uh, the ones that, that I at least I'd been used both in strategy career and strategy consulting career and in my agency career to do a lot of workshops in person. It was just tremendously difficult to do these things online. We were using Zoom together with a number of different tools such as Miro, Mentimeter, we were using polls, breakouts. The overload there was immense on me as a facilitator. So I had to juggle all these things while I was uh while I was facilitating the, the workshop. And secondly, it was just very hard to get people engaged, to get them to lean in compared to what it was in, in the physical space. And that was where I, our idea uh, kind of came. Uh, so, so we thought, okay, there's something here about workshops. On top of that, we'd heard, we'd read articles about the verticalization of Zoom, as it was called at that time, and still kind of is, like uh, basically Zoom competitors popping up that attack specific use cases very narrow use cases, but do them so well that people will, of course, go over to using these competitors for those particular use cases. Whereas Zoom is very much a generalized call tool that can be used for everything. Same goes for Teams, same goes for Google Meet. General tools can be used for everything. Like let's make specific tools that work for specific use cases. It's very much the same thing that you've seen with, you know, Excel or Google Sheets, like an unbundling of those into loads of specific SaaS tools that deal with very specific use cases, be those budgeting use case, project management use cases, et cetera, et cetera. So conceptually, like we thought we'd identified a problem because we'd experienced that ourselves. And conceptually, it made sense from a kind of macro strategic perspective. So. Now our next level, the next actions were two things. One thing was to prototype, which we did very quickly. We had a super ugly first version of Butter, which was actually, we thought, oh yeah, the solution must be like a mobile app, which runs simultaneously with running a Zoom call to kind of get things in there. That was even more overloads. That was a shitty idea. But again, we'd identified the problem quick because people got excited about what we were building and they just didn't like the solution. So 
we, we did prototyping the next iteration of this was doing a like slapping this thing video this app together with a basic video conferencing api as it's called so like you had uh, you had the video together with this mobile app in one tool and people could join in and suddenly there was something that started out there so very rapid prototyping was the first thing uh or mvping or whatever you want to call it the other part was just talking to a ton of users so in the first half year of building Butter, and like we, we, we started launching Butter in June of 2020, I believe. That was kind of when the first prototypes came out. So we'd spent some time there doing the workshops, iterating, thinking, but then we started prototype. And from, from that point, I started, I think over the first half year, I did between three and 500 user interviews, all in what was at that time Butter, right? So in our video conferencing tool, invited them in, did the interviews there. And those were where did you find all... so many people for user interviews? <laughs> yeah, and that's a good question, right? So um, we we wanted to build something around workshops, right? So we thought we'd just interview anyone that did anything that kind of tasted a little bit of workshops, right? So that would be consultants, coaches, uh, trainers, uh, uh, product designers running design sprints, like you name it. There's so many people that are doing workshops. Um, and you just reach out and... to them on LinkedIn? Yeah, so actually the first part was talking with people we knew. Again, I came from consulting and agency background. Chris, my co-founder, he came from a UX design background. So he'd been done, uh, he's been part of an agency that did a lot of uh, UX workshops. So we started reaching out to our network, uh, people that we already knew and did interview them. So again, I think first learning there is if you're building something and you don't know how to get to the users, then you're probably building something wrong because... Mm -hmm. Like if you if you can't even get to the people that have the problem, how do you even know whether the problem is real? If it's not really natural for you to reach out to them, then maybe it's just opportunistic. So we knew exactly who to reach out to because we'd call the people and we'd experience it ourselves and stuff like that, right? So so we knew where to start. And if you don't even know where to start, then you're probably doing something wrong. So of course this wasn't like this only gave us so many people. So yes, back to your comment there, Nitish. Like yes, it was on LinkedIn. I just, we mass reached out on LinkedIn, like connected with everyone that had the title of coach, consultant, whatever, like worldwide and just started chatting with them, you know? Like, hey, how do you, like, what are your problems? Uh, like, are you doing online workshops? What problems are you facing? What tools are you using? We're very open in the way that we're doing, like doing the interviews. Um, I know whether you know, there's this book called The Mom Test, which is absolutely amazing. And on in terms of how you do problem uh, identification and user interviews. And, uh, and we, we use that methodology very much with identifying these problems in Butter. Then we had, it had the dual effect of actually doing the interviews in Butter. So some people actually latch onto this like, ah, this cool, this is interesting. Uh, and some people, uh, and a certain percentage of those started using Butter. So that was kind of how we got our first early users. That was actually through doing the user interviews in, in Butter itself. This is really cool. And, um... I just love your um, your grit of going from you know going from startup school where you learn how to identify ideas or problems and then all the way through identifying one and then doing so many hundreds of user interviews to just nail down the problem. I think this is a very helpful uh, framework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's like even to this day, I do probably between between five and 20 user interviews a week still, uh, personally. And they might be with non, like it's a mix of things because what's the interview? Like sometimes it's demos to to of Butter to totally new users where you also learn something from their problems because in the beginning you do problem identification with them. Sometimes it is, it's interviews with current customers about that, like, so people are already using Butter about what works and what's not working with them. Um, yeah, so it's a mix of different types, but I talk with tons of users or potential users every week. Uh, it's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, like, honestly, it's like, it, it also drives so much, it, it drives energy, of course. Like, I'm a, you can probably feel it. I'm a pretty sociable person. I like talking to people. Um, but on top of that, it also, it provides you so much information to your, like, to the back of your mind on what's happening. So, Sometimes you'll have founders say, oh, yes, I have uh, what something called founder intuition, right? I, we're building this because I think it's a great idea to build this, right? And 
and and often when you read startup stories, it'll be around this founder intuition. This person just knew what to build and ah, had like Steve Jobs had, you know, great intuition about how to do design and that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe it's not the best of examples, but you'll hear this uh, quite a lot of times. And I believe that founder intuition is basically the unprocessed collective data that you have from just talking to tons and tons of users and experiencing the problem that you're trying to solve yourself. And that's why where all this intuition kind of uh, comes from. So that's why I'm uh, also doing this to kind of keep on building that muscle of founder intuition. Yeah, I love it. Love this concept of building founder intuition, this um, mystical thing by just doing more user interviews and talking to more people. I mean, Y Combinator, which is, you know, it's an inspirational, uh, it's, it's got so much great materials. And I mean, they say you when you're building a startup, you need to do things. You need to talk to users and build uh, build product, right? Those only two things. Everything else is what they so often call fake work or distractions or whatever, right? Um, right. Uh, one of my one of my best examples of and, and sorry for the digression, but one of my best examples of fake work is uh, participating in startup competitions, so and pitching competitions and these kind of things. So we did it a lot with stream trucks. We want uh, we want tons of awards and all kinds of stuff because I'm pretty good at pitching and like it, story made sense, <laughs> but it just didn't really matter because we were not solving a real problem and we weren't building great product or uh, that, that, that solved us. So again, those are the only things that matter and. Uh, you should almost every week I go through my itinerary, I go through my to-dos every day actually, and say, hey, uh, the things that I'm doing today, are they are they actually valuable for the business? Um sometimes I'll do stuff like, you know, being on podcasts <laughs> that's not obviously valuable uh, to the business, but that's also giving a little back back to the community. And I also love doing it. And thank you again so much for having me. But I think that there is a certain discipline and just always questioning whatever you do like does it is it talking to users or is it building product is it anything else then it's useless right yeah. right this is fascinating i love it <laughs> thanks <laughs> okay now i want to ask you about your advice as a founder on a few of the topics that that are up in the mind of a lot of the listeners and personally myself so um the the first one is how do you think about product-led versus community-led? Uh, oh, I think they're super... I, I, I think, firstly, I think they are the complex concepts. I think product-led growth is beginning to be reasonably well-defined. Essentially, it's the fact that the more users that you have in the product, uh, that they then bring in new users of the product. One example with is with Butter, like 30% of the new users that we have signed up, they say that they've been in a Butter session before, right? So... Obviously, there's a very and we almost all of our growth is organic. So, obviously, there's a big there's a big kind of organic um, uh, uh, a growth drive happening, a product that growth drive happening there. So, uh, so it's reasonably well defined. Community led growth is a bit less well defined. I don't even know how I perf how I define it today. But I mean, we've got a community with Butter that's reasonably well established. We've got a thousand. 1100 I think facilitators that have been uh, that is part of this amazing community that our wonderful uh, head of community and Maria has built she's like she's mind-blowing that woman uh, like yeah, biggest big shout out to her but I I don't think that the community is driving growth per se like for us the community is um and, and maybe this is not answering your question directly but for us the community is doing three things in this order Firstly, it's a positioning thing, like brand slash positioning, uh, where like we want Butter to be positioned as a tool for facilitators doing workshops, trainings, whatever. So we're building a community for facilitators. And increasingly, you know, people know because of that community as well, that Butter is a tool built for facilitators because of the community. This is a positioning thing. It doesn't directly help with, with growth, but it indirectly helps with growth because it creates an extremely clear positioning for us. Second thing is insights. Again, insights might be in two different 
chunks. One thing is insights that is around the problem. So understanding how facilitators, they run workshops online and which problems they're facing. The other type of insights is based around the products. Uh, like, hey, how are you currently experiencing our breakouts? So which things might you, uh, uh, which new integrations might you want to use in Butter? But we use the community a lot there to, to generate insights for us so, or evaluate the product. The third thing is kind of growth because you're using it, uh, you're using community members as ambassadors and uh, you can then bring in people into the community that then get exposed to the product that then leads to growth. But I actually think that growth is the least important of those three uh, and the least direct. And I think the more you, the more you force the community to be around growth, the less effective it will actually be for your growth. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. So the, the main value of community for butter is more in the branding sense of things where um, it's, uh, it's, it's a necessary long-term game and not really it's very much uh, a long-term game. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, we've got tons of community members that are facilitators, but aren't using butter as their primary tool. And that's okay because it's not a community of product we're building. It's a community of practice that we're building, which helps with positioning way more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. This is fascinating. Okay. Next question. What do you really value in an employee at a young startup like Butter? Like what would make an excellent employee? One big thing, proactivity. Right. So again, this is what we screen for and everything. And I, again, Butter is a fully remote company. We've got like 18 people across 10 different countries. And uh, the most important thing when you're remote is that people take ownership and they solve the problem. They identify and solve the problems by themselves. They don't need to have strict guidance all the time. So like proactivity is by far the biggest thing that we are, that we're looking into there. And in terms of proactivity, I think that the, Again, you can see it in a lot of ways, but very often, like uh, in in a funny way, it's not the straight A students that show a lot of proactivity. It's the it's the people who've done a lot of extracurricular stuff, who just do stuff because they like to do stuff, who who kind of carved their own path in life. If that makes sense, yeah, right. Like starting up podcasts. So yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, is that what you, you know look for as signs when you're maybe interviewing candidates like yes. have they started their own stuff in life yeah i mean it can be a lot of things it could also be like oh like uh, as a developer i like how they learned to be a developer they just did that because because they couldn't help it and they found all the resources themselves and suddenly they started building things and you know Oof, right uh, things happen right so it's like all kinds of science that shows productivity uh, people who traveled a lot in their younger days uh, on their own right because that also requires quite a bit of productivity through that people that just did things that stepped a little bit outside of the usual way of doing things and where life didn't just carry them along mm. yeah this is um this makes me feel very hopeful because this is kind of the person that i consider myself to be and uh yeah <laughs> yeah no i could definitely i can definitely see that yeah <laughs> all right okay uh now i want to ask you about something that i i saw that you tweeted once like i'm gonna quote it and you said that uh you you retweeted something paul graham tweeted and uh he said nothing great is ever created by a nine to five or a looks good to me culture can you um expand upon that oh I've worked 60 to 80 hours my entire adult life per week. Um, it's uh, it's uh, so big a part of who I am. And it's it's not because I take big pride in working a lot. It's just because I can't help it, you know? And I, I don't say, oh, well, that was a good day's work. Now I stopped. I, I just... I just keep on doing it because I cannot help. And, uh, and I think that that's the same for a... Like an early stage startup and, and the company in general is like... People need to work just because they can't help not work, you know? So again, back to the whole proactivity thing. If you if you are in a nine to five mindset that you're not in a proactivity mindset at all, right? You you count the hours that you put in and then that's kind of it, right? You're not, you're, you're only concerned with input. You're not concerned about whatever, or you may be concerned about output. You may be concerned about, yes, I take pride in my work, but I only do it these hours of the day. 
but there's not that extraordinary drive, right? So uh, I think that's why that's my biggest takeaway in terms of building a building a company that you need that extraordinary drive. Right. This is also very interesting because um, there's so much going. It's it's become almost like a, a cultural debate, you know, nine to five versus um, building and you know just being passionate. So it's it's great to have your views on this. And I think. I think it's important not to get the other way as well. Like again, I, I had a lot of people that uh, I had a, uh, quite a few friends that became um, investment bankers and worked at Goldman or whatever. Like uh, worked eighty to one hundred hour weeks and like were called during the weekends and you know and had to work. And it's it's not the it's not the slave driver whiplashing culture of just working hard because you have to work hard. It's not the, it's not the work many hours to look good. It's just the, it's the culture of just caring so much that you cannot help not to do the things right. Or just caring so much that you, you don't want that shitty email to go out with the errors in there, or you don't want, you want the product to be perfect. Or you want to ship the code without the bugs. Right. And you want to do it fast. Right. That's the culture that you need to need to somehow create that extreme culture of caring while also taking care of yourself, by the way. And it's like, again, I hear a lot of people talking about work-life balance for the sake of work-life balance. That, that sounds very nice. I think a work-life balance for the sake of just mental sanity and being able to keep this level of grit for a very long period of time because you need to be extremely mentally stable and and healthy to keep on going for for instance as many years as i have right uh, i'm i'm a genuinely pretty happy person even at the darkest of days you know i feel pretty okay right i mean yeah we all have shitty days and but i overall feel pretty mentally stable and, and, and it is just so important for keeping on going. And that's why you also need to take care of yourself while working hard. But I also think that the way to do that is not looking at the hours you put in, but rather looking at the output. And when you're exhausted, when you cannot push yourself anymore for a day, then you stop, right? Because then you know you'll create better output tomorrow and that's what you care about. I hope that kind of makes sense. <laughs> it does, it does. And it makes a lot of sense, actually, because what I'm seeing is that if you care so much about something, then working on it, actually, that's what makes you happier. That's like the concept exactly. of flow. Yeah. You know, yes, being in the state of flow. flow. Yep. Yeah. Totally. totally. <laughs> All right, Jacob. I think we're almost at time. So uh, I'm going to be respectful of your time. I have so many more questions, but I will pause now. It has been so great chatting with you and talking to you about building startups likewise likewise Nikesh. this is uh, so many super cool questions i really love them and love the depth that you're going into and i, I love the mission that you guys have as well so so happy to be here thank you so much for joining us jacob thank you so much for having me <laughs>